She's really good at... What are you good at, Mary? Not much. <laughs> My husband would say nothing. <laughs> Very good. That's a practical example. Mary's good at cooking and what's he good at? Finance. Perfect. Same thing in my household. My husband is very good at organising things for us. He's very good at the finances. I'm good at keeping the household running. How about you, Steve? <laughs> Looking after Andy. Because <laughs> the wife won't. <laughs> um, what was I think get the woman to do everything. Oh. <laughs> well, <laughs> no, I think um, in a Christian marriage for both roles, I would say communication is really important between two and you can compromise, like you both can come up with an agreement of what each role is and it can overlap. So, for instance, um, say if my role is to cook and I'm working late one night, he can cook. It's not a big deal. Or, for instance, he might discuss with me some ideas about finance. might not be my role, but I might say to him, so my husband's called Mark, I might say to him, Mark, I'm not 100% certain, but, you know, have you asked this person? So I might give him ideas. So I think in a Christian marriage, like, don't be so stubborn about roles. I think both roles should overlap with love and communication. That's really important. I have a feeling the person that was asking this question was asking in terms of, does the woman just do the housework and does the man go to work? I don't know if that was the gist, but no, that's not what, how it happens. As Mary said, there's got to be compromise, there's got to be overlap in terms of both sets of responsibilities. And the most important thing is there has to be kindness between the two. As Mary said, she can't do something, Mark will take over. But in both aspects, in everything, in practically, in also the spiritual life. This is Mr. 33 years that we were talking about. I said there was 33 years of experience on its way. In here. I don't Quit. know what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> um, look, I, I love all these answers that have been given, uh, and I think it's important to understand that... Um, you come to a marriage, uh, and this relationship brings with it talents from every side. So you need to actually uh, combine your talents together, to think together, to speak together, to uh, pray together, and to see actually um, what you are able to contribute. And um, nowadays, I think you know, males and females are um, are good at basically everything. But if one of the partners is better at something, then sure, that can be left up to them and the other person supports by encouraging and supporting and so far. But I think it's important that um, there is some sort of dialogue, so I like this point about communication together to see what you can bring to the table. Abuna, Makaitis, while you have the mic, there is two questions here that sort of tie into each other, so I'll ask both of them and we'll get your view. The first one is, how do you know the difference between God's will for relationship and your own personal wants? And the second question is, how do you know if the relationship you're in is the will of God, or how do you know if the partner you're with is from the will of God? So two questions about um, whether or not it's the will of God or your own personal um, view on things. Thanks, Anthony. Um, the will of God is... Um, it's actually a, a very deep uh, issue, and it doesn't come um, just that quickly. I think it needs to have a personal and intimate relationship between the person and the Lord to be able to be in tune with the will of God. Um, and the will of God takes time to be revealed. And whether you feel peaceful about uh, a certain issue over a length of time. Now, um, sometimes we... Um, we override the will of God by insisting on my own will, which is actually very dangerous. So maybe one test that you need to do to see whether it's the will of God or not is to ask yourself and say, if I take myself out of the equation and I'm advising my best friend who's in that situation, what would I say to them? That's much easier said than done. So imagine, for example, if you're in a relationship 
and you're getting to know a person, you want to know whether that person is right for you, whether it's the will of God and so forth, try to totally remove yourself from the situation and advise um, a good friend of yours, honestly and openly, what they should think about that relationship and how they should deal with it. Very difficult situation to, uh, to do. But if you really want to know the will of God, um, submit your will totally to the will of God. By that I mean that if the Lord shows you signs, do not be stubborn to say, no, I want this to work out, or I'm insisting on this to work out. Be very careful that you don't impose your own will on the will of God. Okay, the Slido is up and running and working well. So we have a couple of questions. One is specifically to the Abunas, but I'll give you a break. And the other I'll make specifically to the lay people. So um, the first one is, what is the biggest challenge you've ever faced? How did you overcome it? Practically, not just prayer, is the directive. Um, so can one of you enlighten us? And maybe I'll give the Abunas a heads up because it's a difficult question, the second one. To the Abunas specifically, what's the main reason people get divorced in the Coptic community? So think about that and then we'll hear from the lay people in the meantime. Okay, so the challenges that I experienced the most when I first got married was juggling families. I think that was very hard at the beginning because when you're engaged, you sort of go back to your own house, it's okay, it's sort of like, yeah, you, you go to this event or you go to here, that's all right, I'll do my own thing. But when you're married, you're under the same roof and you want your partner to be at places and you want to have also equality between two families. So I think that was very hard for us at the beginning of the marriage and the way we overcome it took us, it wasn't like a couple of months, I reckon for at least for the first year, it was really hard juggling between two families. It got to a point where it was, it was like, um, okay, so if we're gonna do this with your family, I wanna do this with my family. Or if we're gonna do this with my family, you can do it with your family. The only way we overcome it was a lot of discussing. So I think as women, sometimes we think men can read our minds. Um, they can't. <laughs> and we assume they know how we feel and they assume I mean, we assume all of that. So it's really important to discuss things with your partner and explain your concerns and to also schedule in time for yourselves. And the other hard thing for us was like, because I'm Sudanese and he's Egyptian, so there was a little bit of cultural conflict. We like to do a lot of things. We like to celebrate everything. Um, everything is a celebration for Sudanese people. It wasn't like that for him. So it was on, well, do we have to celebrate this again and again and again? So that was another thing we had to really overcome. The biggest challenge that my husband and I had to face in our relationship, and forgive me because it's, it is a little bit heavy and I'm not gonna cry. Um, but recently with the birth of our, oh my God, I'm gonna cry. Our third child, before she was born, we were told that she would be born with a heart condition. I'm not gonna cry, it's good news, I promise. <laughs> so the person asking this question said, not just prayer. But the first thing I'm gonna say to you is prayer above everything else. 100% prayer above everything else. The second thing is, and Mary touched on this as well, is communication. So obviously we were both going through our own emotional, so we had to accept what was happening first of all and accept that this was God's will. The next thing is believing in God's will. Believing wholeheartedly, no matter what, whatever the outcome was, this was God's will and regardless of what it was going to be, we were accepting of it. Our life was entirely in his hands. Her life was entirely in his hands and we would submit, as Abuna said earlier. Between the two of us, yes, prayer was a big thing and we prayed every single second of the day, but we had to talk. We had to allow time for each other to sit down and talk and express our emotions. And whether it be that you're dealing with a situation with a sick child or a conflict with family or there's, you know, my family's got this function or his family's got this function at the same time. Biggest thing that I can tell you, regardless of what it is, is communication. 
don't assume that the other person knows your feelings. Don't assume that everything will just work out. You must give each other that time. You must give each other that peace as well and understand that your partner is also relying on you. You rely on them and they're relying on you. Good news in our situation is our daughter was born. She, you know, she's got her issues, but she's, she's here and she's alive and she's amazing. And we're very thankful for that. But overcoming the challenge of giving each other that space and being able to fully, fully be vulnerable with each other is so important. I think I just sort of... Thanks to him. Um, I think I just uh, second that because I think um, you think before going into a marriage that you would know every certain situation that comes your way um, but there's always going to be things that sort of crop up to test you and, to, and that are going to be hard to do um, and uh, th those two things in terms of clinging to God and, and, and prayer to God and, and really sort of focusing on your relationship with God, both of you, as well as that communication thing. It's very hard for guys to do that whole communication thing. Um, you know, we naturally don't talk a lot. We sort of just work to solutions and get things done. But the women, they're more into sort of discussing and talking and, you know, talking heaps and really telling you their emotions and, and really sort of listening to them. And they don't want you to come up with a solution. The thing is, it's just getting it out there and getting it out in the open. And for me, that's probably sort of the biggest thing as a guy because we're sort of solution-orientated. Mate, look, it's clear and simple what you need to do. Just do it. But it just doesn't happen that way. So um, it's, it's a lot of patience, a lot of forgiveness, um, and a lot of sort of just enduring each other um, and communication. That's the big thing, knowing how each person sort of thinks and, and is wired. And, and in certain situations, there are going to be certain situations that you deal with differently. And, um, but the, the main thing is to work it out together and, and be careful of sort of external forces as well, especially sort of family and mother-in-laws getting in, involved in things. This is live broadcasting. <laughs> Um, so we'll, uh, Abuna Daniel's been quietest on the panel, so we'll, you can start with that doozy of a question. Um, what's the main reason people get divorced in the Coptic community? Um, I think it's um, poor maturity or ill maturity of the, of the couple usually manifested in either uh, in-law problems or uh, selfishness. So um, we get, uh, I think sometimes the way generations have been raised is a little bit insular and uh, they lack a little bit, lack of, lack of maturity and they have a bit of trouble quite enmeshed with their families and very hard to pull out and understand that they're forming a new family now. And uh, we get not in-laws interfering, but rebound into, into, into in-law problems. And that's, uh, once you put a third party into a relationship, you're gonna explode that. And sometimes the ill-maturity appears in selfishness. And selfishness is probably the biggest toxin of a marriage. So, um, uh, boys think that they're still boys and they still want to go out and do boy things and girls still want to go out and do girl things and they forget that now they've been through the sacrament uh, welded together in unity of marriage. So uh, if you're not mature, stay away from the opposite sex. Uh, if you're selfish, do everybody a favour and don't get married. Uh, uh, one of those two. When you get over those two hurdles, we might talk. <laughs> mistrust. mistrust. Well, mistrust comes also. I I put that down to um, um, I put that down to ill maturity. So sometimes we don't understand. Sometimes we take trust as being uh, you do what I tell you and I tell you, and things like that. And then the ill maturity. Then one partner may go tell their parents about. 
everything that goes on and then that shakes the heart of Lord, the situation. Um, I'm gonna... I might just put um, some speakers on the spots for each of these questions. So we'll keep moving on because there is a lot coming through um, the slider. There's, there's a, another question on this coming for Abuna Mac specifically. Um, so keep your question ready, Abuna. Um, there's a lot coming through on the link. We're using sli.do. If you want to jump on that website and use the hashtag YIC, you can send through um, your questions. Two of the questions we've asked tonight have been sent as we've been talking. So you will get asked if it's a good question or if we have time to answer them. Steve, I might ask you this question. Um, there is a long-standing tradition of couples living together once they are married. What is the Coptic Church's view on couples who are engaged and start living together? Or your practical view on that? Obviously, the, the, the Coptic Church believes that uh, that's, that's a no-no. That's um, but I just want to sort of um, share with you in terms of just something that I've sort of found. And this was um, in terms of uh, cohabitation, those that um, cohabitate before they actually um, get married, they um, tend to have a 33% higher divorce rate than those that are not married. Um, or are not sort of living together before they get married. So um, a lot of, I don't know, research and stuff goes into, into these sort of statistics and they believe maybe they just slide into it, that they, they get into a situation where you're cohabitating, um, you know, you buy a dog together, you, know, you sort of set up a, a home together, your finances are together, and to get out of that is a lot harder than if you weren't sort of living together um, before marriage um, and then obviously sort of living together means that you're going to get intimate and there may be pregnancies out of out of wedlock that are sort of happening so um, these sort of things uh, I don't know if that statistic is sort of something to go by but um, definitely I guess for us in terms of the Coptic Church or in terms of uh, the marriage it is a sacrament and I think a lot of people and, and we turn to um, to muddy the waters and think that um, you know, we take it as the world does, that it's some sort of legal contract and, you know, people say, I don't need a paper to, to be married. But for us in the church, it's, it's a sacrament. It's something that is um, a mystery with the Holy Spirit where to become one, um, you know, the, the whole sort of biblical significance behind that sort of thing and, uh, and the whole idea that, you know, it is um, a sacrament within the church, um, you know, revolving around the Eucharist, revolving around life in Christ. Um, and so it's emulating our own life with Christ. You know, uh, there's always the, 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 um, the imagery within the Bible about, you know, the, the soul being sort of the, um, the, the bride of Christ, the bridegroom. And so the marriage needs to be a imagery or a, um, a symbolism um, of that relationship. Christ um, and so to, to do that and to and to do that uh, uh, you know before it's actually been sanctified means you're you're not sort of taking this actual sacrament seriously as it should be and we're, we're thinking about it more from a worldly perspective rather from a, um, a spiritual or um, church perspective thank you um, this is um, aimed at one of the female panelists I might get Diana to answer this question from a female's perspective, if your partner's interstate, is it wrong to go visit them alone, in brackets, or do you need to take a friend, slash parent, slash sibling? Question mark. Juicy. <laughs> okay, the first thing here is intentions. So your partner lives interstate, you want to go visit your partner interstate, vice versa but you're asking, should you need to bring a brother or a sister or a friend? I don't believe you do. Forgive me, Abuna, you might say otherwise. Um, your family should be well and truly aware of what you're trying to achieve and vice versa with your partner's family also. If the intention is clear, you are seeing this person with a view to marriage, I think that most time you can spend together now is fantastic. Obviously, 
if you are travelling to interstate to stay with them, everything has to be above board, everything has to be clear. Where are you staying? Your parents need to be on track. His or her parents need to be on track with the situation. Honesty is going to be your best policy with this situation. Be open, be very clear. Your parents have to agree, his parents have to agree. If there is any kind of issue in this first step before the travel even happens, there has to be a communication, there has to be something, there has to be a bottom line. I don't believe that spending time together is a bad thing. Obviously, within limitations, you know, you're going to go out to a restaurant or a cafe, you're not going to go somewhere else. <laughs> you're going to go spend time where there's other people, you need to spend time together talking and getting to know each other, and equally, you need to spend time with each other's family. I think that's where my view is on that, Anthony. Maybe anything to add? Um, Abuna Makarios, to the fathers of the church, how does the church get together and decide on the guidelines of what warrants a divorce? Is it by bishops who are unmarried and are they the best people to know? I think the person asking that question maybe is having a bit of a, a little dig here. Um, but um, don't, don't underestimate the knowledge and the spirituality and the holiness that um, um, the monastic order brings to the church. The monastic order is actually what, um, what keeps the church solidified and it's a beautiful basis for the, for the church. Um, and just today we we're actually going through another meeting uh, with... Um, older married couples, and the amount of writing that uh, came up from uh, one of the early church fathers, St. John Chrysostom, about marriage and how to address each other in marriage and what to do in marriage is a wealth of information. This is coming from a monastic uh, man who lived in the fourth century, and his writings are so, so uh, relevant to us nowadays. So be careful that we don't think that these people don't know what they're talking about. But um, coming back to the first part of the question, um, uh, the church currently uh, will dissolve a marriage uh, under two conditions. The first condition is what we call um, a granting of a permission to remarry within the church, and that is given in cases where one um, spouse has actually broken the covenant of marriage by unfaithfulness, okay? So that person, who is the victim in this um, scenario is given a permission to remarry within the church. At the moment, to be quite honest, the church is actually looking at what can be done to the other partner who has wronged um, and who has gone through this unfaithfulness and what uh, needs to be done with this person and how to deal with this person and how their repentance is going and so forth. The second uh, category for the church is what, what they call the church annulment. And a church annulment is different to the first case in that a church annulment means that the, the church views that, that the marriage did not exist in the first place. And there are certain very strict conditions for that. For example, if there is something uh, major that is hidden from one of the partners uh, to the other before marriage and then it's discovered after marriage, then that might be grounds for annulment. But each of those categories, of course, has uh, very strict details to it without going into too much details at the moment. Thank you, Buna. Um, Buna, Daniel, what if the person I love is atheist? Then you've got a problem. <laughs> um, look, there's... We, um, without a shared... Without a shared... Uh, um, without a shared aspiration in life, marriage becomes very, very hard. So really we, we marry on hope more than anything else. We might date a person, we might court a person, we might meet them, but at the end we marry in hope and in faith. So uh, we hope and we aspire that this person has the same values as us, has the same aspirations in life as us. 
if we come from the same faith background, then that aspiration is likely and those values are likely to be coincide. If we come from different faith background or different view of the world, different world views, then they may look like we're together now, but the long-term aspirations are going to differ way, way, way down. Um, can I give an example? Um, uh, sometimes people say, for instance, if you speak to a person who's an atheist, um, I'm not saying anything about their morality or their goodness or their fitness as a person. Certainly there are outstanding citizens and outstanding people who aren't of faith. But they don't believe in faith. They believe in something that's tangible. And so if you don't believe in faith, that means that you have proof of things unseen. How can you believe in love? So can anyone show me an inch of love? Can anyone show me evidence of love? Love is a faith, isn't it? Love is faith in the other person. If I don't have a background where I believe I don't be, where I don't believe in the unseen, in the unseen God, in the transcendent God, then there's going to be a little bit of shakiness about how me and my partner are in love with each other. They either have faith in that in that uh, in that relationship, love loving by faith. I mean, faith in the other person, not not faith in God which means they do have faith and therefore they're denying their faith in God or they've completely annihilated anything called belief in the unseen and they can't love another person. So I think there's, there's something about that that's really, really worrying within that sense. Um, and then you can form a partnership, but if one person's an atheist, you're not you can't draw on the blessings of God. If, uh, if we put an atheist uh, trying to yoke them with a believer, how can we ask the Holy Spirit to make one of them? All we're going on there is human emotions. All we're going there is human fellowship or human uh, jointness. It's no longer a sacrament. It's just a relationship, and the relationship will last as long as a relationship lasts. Ask any atheist, ask any atheist, do you believe in a lifelong marriage? What will they say? What do you think they will say? Hmm? They don't, even if they believe in marriage, even if they believe in marriage, if you ask them for the challenge, how long is your marriage going to last? What will they say? As long as it lasts. Isn't that right? But for a Christian person, what's the longevity of marriage based on? The unseen Holy Spirit, the power of faith, the sense that God has united us together. If you want to risk your life without that blessing, go right ahead. But you're taking a risk. Um. There's a lot of questions coming through on the same um, issue about um, your, the person that you're interested in being Christian but not necessarily Coptic Orthodox. So do you want to maybe add, because that was specifically about atheism, I guess, okay. godless merit. I think we're, we're on the same, we're a little bit better along than, than an atheist, but our faith, our values in life have to match with each other, okay? Uh, I think we live in Australia, and I think you guys meet different kinds of people, and I think roughly from what I see, at least 40% of marriages within the church these days are, are cross-cultural. So um, there's every chance that at least... A third of you here will end up with a, a partner that's not from the same background. But let's get the faith part in sync with each other. 
Because, again, it's the faith part that will carry us through, you know. Believing that I stand up and I form a contract before God is different than believing that I form a sacrament, that God forms us a couple in a sacrament, in a holy, mysterious uh, work of the Holy Spirit that binds our souls together and makes us one. There are Christians, very good Christians, believing Christians, who believe that this is a contract before God and contracts can be broken. And But the church, the Orthodox Church, teaches us to be meshed together, welded together in the oneness of holy matrimony through the power of the Holy Spirit. Get that right. Get that right and everything else will follow. Thank you. Um, this question is to the married couples on the panel. They're all married, but I'm assuming it's to the lay panelists. So I'll ask Mary this question. I always get confused between friends and something more, how do you know? I'm assuming it's that old, how do you know he's the one question? He um, or she. When that person, in my opinion, when that person is your friend, what are you sharing with that person? So are you, so to me, intimacy is not just physical, it can be emotional. So if you're really intimate emotionally with your friend, is he really a friend? So you're sharing so much about you, you're creating vulnerability between you and your friend, they're not really becoming a friend, they're becoming more than that. So one or the other is really leading the other one on, that's, that's how I see it. So if you're going to be friends, then everyone knows what boundaries of friends are. Once you cross that boundary, then it's more than that. Perfect. Anyone want to add? I might ask uh, Steve this question. Is it normal to still have doubts or question marks about your partner before marriage? Is not having one shred of a doubt about a person even attainable before getting married? I think that's a very sort of hard question because um, to me, to me, sort of uh, getting into marriage is is how am I as a person in terms of my relationship with God and how well do I know myself so that in terms of my maturity level, how good is that before I can sort of look at the other person? Um, but I think... I like what sort of Abuna said before about there's faith and hope. There's always going to be some sort of doubt as to certain things, but you go in there with faith and hope, knowing that together both of you are on the right track, both of you have you know, those same world views and those um, same ideas about God. And it just makes it a lot easier so that you can sort of resolve those sort of issues. Um, it, does take a, it does take a lot of humility uh, on both sides um, within the marriage um, to, to, to try and sort of, um, one, expose those doubts uh, because a lot of times there's things within ourselves that make those things appear in the, other, in the other partner. And so we need to really examine yourself in terms of what are you doing in the relationship that's causing that sort of thing. Um, and then... Um, rather than sort of pointing the figure at the other person. So um, I guess I, uh, um, it, it, my perspective is, is a lot more introspective rather than looking at the other person and saying, hey, there's a lot of doubt. There's always going to be doubt. There's always going to be issues. Um, there's always going to be things that are not 100%. Um, but, but you try and sort of do as much as possible and hopefully you guys are all on the, on the same wavelength so that if there is issues or doubts that come up, they can be resolved and they can, you know, you can find a solution to them. While we're down that end, Abuna Makarios, there's a question about um, the Abuna's role in helping their spiritual children to get married. This question simply is, what is their role? Matchmaker or not? <laughs> Absolutely not matchmaker, no, no, no. Um, uh, Abuna's role is to guide spiritually, uh, to pray with you, um, to ask for God's uh, will to be revealed to you. But uh, if Abuna starts to matchmake, um, you will either love Abuna for the rest of your life or you will hate him for the rest of your life. 
And that's certainly a position that I would not want to, uh, to be in, to be hated by anyone, because it's a personal choice. And I think um, if Abuna was to um, dictate to people what their decision-making should be, then we've really um, gone beyond uh, what our scope is. Our scope is to guide, to pray with you, to help you um, arrive at the decision um, in a mature spiritual way, and God, uh, God's will will be done. So, um, yeah, definitely don't come to a woman and say, Abuna, can you choose for me? It won't happen. Can I just add something to that, just along those sort of lines? You know, I read somewhere that arranged marriages are less divorce rates than normal marriages. So there's obviously some sort of wisdom behind um, why that happens. So I'm not saying Abuna should, and I'm not saying your parents should, but I'm just saying think about that. Only about a 4 to 6% divorce rate amongst those that are arranged marriages. Now, granted, arranged marriages are certain cultures, like your, your Indians, your Middle Eastern um, sort of cultures. They have that sort of thing. But there is some wisdom behind it because when the two families get together, obviously they're sort of um, looking at certain characteristics that they know or think that these two people are of equivalence in some sort of way and therefore that marriage could work in some sort of way. Now we in the Western society look frown upon that but then divorce rates in Western society are 50 to 60 percent. So compare that and sort of and, and then see what is the difference there. Even if those reported divorce rates in arranged marriages are even a little bit more it's still less than what the real divorce rates are. So maybe we're looking at marriage from a different perspective because we're probably putting too much of an emphasis on the emotion and you know the lovey-dovey stuff which all sort of goes away after the first couple of years and then we're not really focusing on what's important in terms of keeping a marriage sustainable so I'm not saying put a buna in that bad situation but maybe think about your families to arrange marriages for you all right um, Abuna Daniel on the other end of the panel. Um, there's a few questions on this coming through on Slido, um, so I'll try and summarise them. To get engaged by the Coptic Church, is there a minimum period that couples must be together for the Coptic Church to bless them in their engagement? And there's also some questions about the engaged couples course and whether or not it's compulsory. Um. Is there a minimum period before you can get engaged? Yeah, to be together before you are engaged. No, I don't think there's a minimum period before you get engaged. There's a minimum period to be engaged of 40 days, and by Commonwealth law, it's 31 days. Um, and so if you want to be, if you happen to find the girl or the guy of your dreams and have fallen madly in love with them and want to get married next week, I think you can apply to the clerical council and they'll set you straight. Well, uh, they might be, may be able to grant you an exemption. Uh, and if, you, if it's less than 31 days, you need to apply to the magistrate's court to get the period of notice of intended marriage shortened. In terms of the uh, marriage preparation course that DICE runs, um, you've asked the right person. <laughs> uh, our diocese was one of the first dioceses in the Coptic Church to have such a program. We've been running it for 16 years now, and uh, a lot of people who have gone through the course witness that it's helped them tremendously. It's, uh, we've had people who've done the course who've decided that they no longer want to continue with their engagement, and we've, done, we've had people who've, uh, who've done the course, and when they came back and run into some stormy waters in their marriage or some wintry days in their marriage, they're able to pinpoint where the problem was because they heard about it in the marriage preparation course. So evidence-based is that it's very, very helpful. And uh, worldwide-based, anyone who does a marriage preparation course before they get married is much less likely to divorce and the rate of satisfaction with the marriage is much higher. Now, there's a, there's a provider with that. It's either because you really want to make your marriage to work, that's why you undergo a marriage preparation course, or the marriage preparation course itself is, has some magic quality about it.
Uh, ever since uh, 2015, the Holy Synod has passed a resolution saying you must complete a marriage preparation course uh, and obtain a certificate before you can get married in a Coptic Orthodox Church. Uh, now, the, ch the, the church in Melbourne has lost something in the translation of that. Uh, we still have a few couples that, that get married. Maybe a third of our couples seem to go through the net and not go through the marriage preparation course. Evidence-based, uh, experience-based, uh, the fact that you are making a huge statement by saying, I want to do a marriage preparation course, I think you're putting your future relationship at jeopardy if you don't do it. So is it compulsory? Yes. Is it worthwhile? Yes. Should you do it? Yes. And when should you do it? You should do it as early as possible uh, in your courtship or your engagement. Thank you. We haven't heard from Diana for a while, so I'll ask you this question. Please provide us some tips how to handle a relationship when people in the church may always talk about it. If I were to break up with my partner, it would cause more chaos with people from church than my own partner. So how to, how to deal with the perceived everybody talking about my relationship at church? Thanks, Anthony. <laughs> Question without notice. How to deal with everyone talking about my relationship? Deal with it. Are you in it for the right reasons? Simple. Are you in this relationship to get married to this person? Or are you in this relationship for a bit of fun? Let's be honest. If you're in this relationship to truly get to know this person, it doesn't matter. People talk. People will talk about anything and everything. I think possibly you're hypersensitive about this relationship or people talking about it because it might be something very new to you, it might be something that makes you very vulnerable or you really well and truly like this person. But at the end of the day, you can't stop people from talking. Are your intentions clear? Are your intentions right? Are your intentions godly? I think that's one of the biggest questions you have to ask yourself. People have an opinion. Everyone's got an opinion. You know what they say about opinions. But think to yourself and ask yourself the question, what are your intentions in this relationship? And if you are struggling, if it's having some sort of negative effect on you, then maybe a bit of withdrawal publicly won't hurt. I think that's all I have to say. Um, I just wanted to add to that. I think it's perception. You, like, I don't think everyone's talking about you. I think that's a massive perception or assumption that you're thinking. You can't convince me, like, you've got a list of every single person that's talking. Um, so keep in mind, like, what you're perceiving is always negative. Like, no one's ever going to go, oh, these people are talking about me in a positive manner. You're always going to go, oh, what are they saying about me? You're talking about me in a negative manner. And if your parents know, so what's the issue? Like, if you're worried about people talking, there's an underlying fear. And where's the fear coming from? Is it something, yeah, is there a secret you're hiding? Or is there something wrong you're doing? There's something going on at an underlying level, and that's why you're really worried. Okay. Uh, I think there's an earlier question to what I'm curious about, the will of God. Um, sometimes the will of God is up in neon lights, and uh, people are chattering and they're saying this is a shipwreck about to happen and we're not listening to the will of God. Like, you know, the number of times I've had couples a couple of weeks away or three weeks away or a month away or three months away from their wedding day and saying, obviously looking as this is a very shaky relationship and the only excuse they can give is that they've booked the reception and are going to lose the deposit or they've already printed the engagement cards. Disaster going to happen, you know? To heck with the deposit. To heck with the, um, we, can, we can lose a few more trees in the invitation. The, the will of God is very, very clear, you know? You've got some time to mature. You've got some work to do before you should get married, even if this is the right person. Sometimes the will of God is very clear in our face, but we just don't want to hear it. Um, I might ask all three lay panellists this one, and there's a 
heavy question coming for the Abunas after this, but there's two questions that I think um, they, can, they can fight amongst themselves, but um, two questions that tie in to each other well, and I think they sort of address um, a majority of the audience, so we'll see what you get your thoughts and advice on this. I'm single, or well, I think it's some of the audience, I'm single and nowhere near getting married. What should I be focusing on to better myself and my personal development in hopes of being a great spouse and my self-control isn't the best and I try to keep my thoughts pure and want to make my relationship holy before I get married? What's your advice on that? How do I keep my thoughts pure if my self-control isn't the best? I think keep on working on yourself, keep on working on your relationship with God. Um, do what you have to do, serve in the church, work on your career, your studies, do all that sort of thing. Um, be the best person you can um, be. I think that's, that's all good. Um, purity, purity, um, purity comes from your relationship with God. I increase your relationship with God and, and you'll find that these things um, fall away. Try not to lead yourself into temptation. Don't put yourself in sort of um, situations where you are going to to fall and 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 and, and um, you know be tempted and and take away your sexual purity um, or purity in general. Um, you know the senses. It's just all about sort of guarding the senses. Um, the, the, the Desert Fathers talk about sobriety, being sober, um, being vigilant over your thoughts, being vigilant over all the things that sort of come your way. Um, set a guard. Don't be lax in sort of what you do. You know, be, be in, in, in a state of sort of prayerfulness and watchfulness um, all the time. Look at sort of what's coming into your eyes, sort of what you're hearing, you know, what you're doing, all those the places you're going. That, that's the time to sort of really sort of hone down, develop your characteristics, be a mature, godly person as Christ-like as possible. We'll get all your thoughts, yeah. The first part to that question, Anthony, can you just read that again, please? Yes. I'm single and nowhere near getting married. What should I be focusing on to better myself and my personal development in hopes of being a great spouse? I think Steve probably covered that really well, but I think just better yourself in every single facet of your life with your career. Are you where you, where you want to be? Do you want to further study? Um, do you want to work on your health and fitness? Be the best version of yourself so that when you are ready, you're not working on yourself, but you're working to help your partner better themselves also. I think that you as a confident individual attracts the same personality back. So work on those things that will make you confident. Um, find your happy place. Find the things in life that make you happy. Don't focus so much about constantly being on the radar and finding that person, because it will happen when you're ready and when God is, knows that you're ready and when God's ready for you. Um, I agree with what both of them have said, but I have a different spin of things. I see things a bit differently sometimes just because um, I actually met my partner at the age of 19. So I was quite young when I met him and started dating him. The thing is, firstly, marriage isn't for everyone. Like we've got this whole concept of I need to get married. Marriage may not be for you. So don't push the idea and don't force the idea if it's not for you. But my other thing is I grew with my partner at... Um, from the age of 19, he was, yeah, he's three, he's, Mark's three years older than me. But my expectations and his expectations aligned in our relationship. There was boundaries. So he actually brought me closer to God and I grew with him and he grew with me in that way. However, there was boundaries and like our values also aligned. So it made it easier to grow together in a relationship. Okay, here's the heavy question. Um, We'll start with Abuna Daniel because I gave you a bit of a heads up and then Abuna Mac can hear the question and prepare. Abuna's the expert, okay. Um, do Abuna's really encourage women to go back to an abusive relationship and how can Abuna discern this? Um, no, no, priests don't usually, I think every priest 
can uh, recount an incident where they've taken a member of the family away for their safety. So I know I've done it myself, and I'm sure other fathers do that. So we, you know, we we see that maybe the person isn't safe at home, the woman or the man, and we take one of them away and find accommodation for them. And one of the hardest things is going Sunday night trying to find accommodation for someone. Uh, usually the church will will do something to help them. So we don't. It's not uh, return at all costs. Um, if you search in the Bible, there is not one incident of domestic violence in the Bible. There is nowhere in the Bible where it says it's all right to hit your spouse. Nowhere whatsoever. The only thing that comes close to it is when Abraham sent Hagar away into the desert and God brought her back. And so even uh, there's no justification whatsoever for domestic violence. In fact, when you look at it, um, when I was growing up, if a man hits a woman, we called him a coward. Is that right? Uh, if a man, hit, if a man hits a, someone smaller than them or unable to hit them back, we call them cowards. Is that right? And if a person hits another person, they're a criminal. Is that right? And if they've stood up before the altar and the priest or the bishop has instructed them to take care of your wife, which is the commandment given, hasten to do that, which gladdens the heart, and you hit her, then you're a sinner. So we're not going to return someone back home to a cowardly criminal sinner. It doesn't work like that. Um, But we do do our best to mend marriages. Sometimes we get it wrong. But it's not like keep the family together at all costs. We, you know, we do our best to reconcile, to bring back together. And I think, um, you know, there, we do get it wrong sometimes, but it's not by design. It's just by things maybe out of our control. Thank you, Wuna Daniel. You've summed it up very well. I just refuse to live um, with the burden of having put pressure on somebody to stay in an abusive relationship and for them to get maimed or hurt badly or even killed. I will not have that on my conscience. And um, just like Abuna said, I've I've actually said to people, you need to uh, make sure that you are safe no matter what the circumstances are. If you need to call the police, you call the police. If we can't remove the person, then we definitely say to them that you have um, resources at your fingertips that can help you if you feel unsafe or not secure. Um, It's totally, totally wrong. We cannot accept this and we will not accept this. And we need to understand that this is so foreign to Christianity, like Abuna said. I think the issue maybe is that we have been influenced maybe back in our home country, Egypt, by other things, by other faiths. But uh, definitely this is far from a Christian behavior. It just seems like it's far from um, nourishing and cherishing and all the commands that are given to the Christian couple before the altar. But I will not hesitate to even go further and even call the police myself if somebody's in danger. It's just unacceptable on all fronts. Thank you, Abunis. I think the question I was... Yeah, yes. Yes, you should. Both Abuna Macarius's answer and my answer uh, is in political correctness. I heard the same answers given by fathers when I was your age saying that. It, that's the case. So it isn't political correctness. It isn't that we're trying to get out of a, a, a tight spot by the recent media, but it is actually the belief of the church. The, the person who hits his wife um, isn't a suitable husband. I'm just going to add something from my line of work when it comes to domestic violence. Um, Firstly, domestic violence can be from women to men as well. It's not just men to women, so it can go both ways. Secondly, I think we're very quick to also say, oh, Abuna wanted me to stay in the relationship. But you guys need to keep in mind that the rate of domestic violence of the person who's being 
abused actually goes back to the offender. That it's so high. I've never really met anyone who's been abused who do, who leaves straight away from the first time. The likelihood of that person keep, keeps going back is pretty high. So keep that in mind as well. It's you know sometimes our first point point of goal uh, point is to always blame the priest, but it's not always the case. That, that's not it's exactly what the priest said. That's not you know they will not agree to it. Okay, a, a question's just come through literally just now, so I might just ask it to clarify this point. Um, somebody's saying that when you're talking about abuse of wounds, it sounds like you're talking about only physical abuse. Is that also emotional and verbal abuse? You can just clarify that. There's emotional abuse, there's psychological abuse, there's financial abuse, there's physical abuse, there's um, sp spiritual abuse, there's sexual abuse. Um, and they all come to memory very vividly because we were just discussing this very recently and thanks to Wuna Danielle, he's given us a whole list and I think we, that basically covers everything. So it's not just physical abuse, no. Okay. Spiritual abuse is when you use religious beliefs to abuse somebody. So God's going to be upset at you if you call the police or God's going to be upset at you if you don't come back home. Uh, and so uh, I don't think any of the fathers want to be perpetrators of that abuse on anybody. Okay, I might just ask one last question, and I think it's a, a poignant question that's come up a few times. The simplest version of the question is, once a cheater, always a cheater, question mark. And the extension of that is we've got about four or five questions about if we're having trust issues in our relationship, what can I do or what's your advice? I'm assuming this is before marriage. So maybe if two or three of the panelists want to volunteer. I recommend Father Daniel, Diana and Steve and Mary. <laughs> I recommend. <laughs> Um, no, once a cheater isn't always a cheater, but there is a, uh, a, a flag up. And the church is very, very clear within marriage, within marriage, the innocent party or the offended party is asked, do you wish to stay in this marriage? If you, we will support you whether you want to stay or leave. So it's your right, the person has broken the sacrament. If you wish to leave this marriage, the church will support you. If you wish to stay in this marriage, the church will support you. But you make that at that point of time and for that incident only. Um, but once a cheater is not necessarily a cheater, we're all sinners. We're all sinners. But we all have a capacity to forgive or not to forgive. And the church understands that. And Christ himself understands that divorce is not permitted except for sexual immorality. Um, if you have trust issues in your, um, was it in your relationships, depends on how deep they are. They may have a lot to do with you as a person. You know, you may have a lot of insecurities as a person. In which case, you need to go and work on yourself before you proceed with the with the with the relationship. But if um, if if you have trust issues with everybody, then you need to work on yourself. If the trust issues within a relationship, in my experience, they're the hardest things to get over. And um, can I leave it at that? The hardest things to get over. You might need to oh, leave it there. Yeah, if one, if one of you want to say something. Um, I think with the trust thing, it's it, it starts off like, do you have trust issues because of what Abuna said in terms of is it um, you know insecurities, or because you've got evidence to actually and you've got reasons as to why you mistrust this person. So you got to look at there's two different types. The other thing with the once the cheater always a cheater. I don't agree with that, um, only because I think there's different types of cheating. There's like intentional cheating and it's behaviour and it's always ongoing. And then there's the slip, 
which I, I don't condone, I don't think it's right at all, but you know, when you're in a marriage and you've got kids and you've got a household and you're running it and that person accidentally slipped like a woman and said, we're all sinners, I think, I'm not saying you're going to forgive that person, you're going to move past it, but you're more likely to maybe put things in place to move past it compared to intentional cheating. So going out of their way to lie to you, you know, booking a hotel room, a million things like that, that's very intentional and that can get a bit hard to change. I'm sorry, I don't agree. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, everyone, I'm sorry. Cheating is cheating, end of story, full stop. Whether you want to stay, it's your decision, but this is going back to the marriage couples course, everyone. I remember Abuna saying, what is building your relationship and when problems arise. So imagine your relationship, everything that you do, you're creating a foundation. So you know when you're building a house, you want your foundation to be rock solid and cracks will happen. But you have to decide if those problems are either foundational cracks, and this is word for word of what I remember, foundational cracks or surface cracks. In my opinion, a cheating situation is a foundational crack. No go zone. Um, now that's good and I think Diana's sort of got very strong views about that and that's fantastic. Um, but I, I, I think I, I, I just want to refer to, to scripture in, um, in, in Mark chapter 10 when um, the Pharisees came and asked Jesus about divorce specifically. Um, and, and they asked him, okay, uh, divorce happened sort of uh, for adultery and, 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 he, and he replied to them and they were, they were looking for a legal sort of perspective and this is this is how we were sort of speaking before in terms of what's your perspective about marriage and what it, what it's all about they were looking from a legal point of view okay this has happened therefore there needs to be a consequence okay there needs to be a punishment but when he replied to them he didn't reply in a legal point of view he said look he, he talked to them about um uh, about Genesis and about how the whole idea about marriage that you, you you be united as one and that you know it's it's man and wife and so there is there is that element in terms of okay it's a sacrament and yes they've defiled the sacramental bed and, and the, the, the bed of marriage but it's also that whole idea about love and forgiveness and and where, where does that tie in in terms of the marriage and um, and how is it that that you grow together and, and and do that if there is this instance of cheating if it's a one-off it's a look it's it, it, it's hard and it, it's going to depend on both parties and both parties sort of really sort of looking at it and really sort of um uh getting to the point in terms of hey you know it it, it it's happened what, how are we going to deal with it what's going to go on you know can i move beyond this some people can't move beyond that and that's fine that's that's the way it works and that, so, you know, someone's done wrong, there's, there's consequences and it, it, it's going to happen. Um, but we also have to look at it, okay, if we look at marriage as being a icon or symbolism of our relationship with Christ, how many times in the Old Testament did, did God talk about Israel playing the harlot and yet he still accepted Israel and yet he still wanted Israel to come back? So how is it that we emulate this relationship this Christ-like relationship within our marriage? That's, that's the hard question that each, each of you need to ask yourself and how you want to approach that. Maybe people aren't at that maturity level and maybe they're not, maybe, maybe they don't have that relationship with Christ to be able to sort of make those decisions, to be able to forgive and to, and to let go and to, and to move on. And whether or not that's because there's sort of certain personal issues that are going on and certain trust issues and, and, and why you can't move on, that's, that's a whole sort of different question. So um, I guess I sort of, it, it's more of a fluid look in terms of that rather than a concrete look like Diana has. Um, just hearing um, what the panel members were talking about, it sort of took me back to uh, some of the things that we came across in the diocese and some of the cases where this unfortunate situation has arisen between couples. And I think it's important that we also ask the question and say, this person who has wronged or has broken the sacrament, what led that person to this situation? Did the other spouse have any, uh, anything to do with it? 
And it might seem a strange question to ask, but actually it's an important question to ask because sometimes people, unfortunately, when things are not going well in a relationship, they can use intimacy and, um, and uh, you know, sexuality within marriage as a weapon. And that's actually quite dangerous and quite, um, quite scary. You know, there's obviously a lot of other problems that are going in that relationship that need to also be looked at. But um, what led that person to commit the adultery or the f affair or to break that sacrament? Um, just putting it out there that we need to see each case on, the, on its own merits. So. Thank you. Diana and Steve obviously differed there, but somebody said, go Diana, with three A's. And somebody else said, good answer, Steve. So there's obviously um, answers out there for each question. Um, and I think it's really fantastic that we've had this kind of open, mature discussion. Um, and we've differed and we've, everyone's had experiences and answers. So we received 65 questions on the um, Slido this evening um, and maybe 20 or 30 more throughout the week. We obviously didn't answer every single question, but we tried our best to cover the themes that you guys asked for. But if you're asking questions, I encourage you to ask them again to the panellists and to Abunas and to those around you because these are important things for you guys to... Um, get advice on and develop with. So with that, please thank the panel with me.